back to Midwretched. Hi, friends. Welcome back. Hi, friends. Oh. We hope you're all having a lovely day, a lovely week. We sure do. We sure do. Um, I feel like America is hard right now. We have had a lot of mass shootings lately and officer-involved shootings and... I don't know. I'm having a lot of existential dread about it. So I feel a lot of empathy for people out there that are feeling that too. Over here in Chicago, we're dealing with the Adam Toledo case, Mm -hmm. which has been very, very rough. There were protests over the weekend. So, you know, keep safe out there while you're protesting, guys. Be nice to each other. Be kind to each other. The the protests went by my work on Friday and it was always really scary because because of the kids that we see. They get very dysregulated and very anxious very quickly. Oh, I bet they do. Yeah. And it's obviously like hugely anxiety producing. And the fact that that was somebody their age Mm -hmm. is just horrifying. It's really horrifying. It's rough. And I always support protesters, especially in cases like this. Just stay safe, guys, and take care of yourselves and each other. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. This environment just feels really heavy. So that's just, that's been on my mind. And I feel like so much more aware of all the different facets of these things, given the kind of research that we do, you know, for this show. So like just looking at every angle on a situation, I feel like it really, I don't know. It just makes me see these things in a whole new way that is just eye-opening. The prosecutors have been, they've been covering the Derek Chauvin trial. God, I love them so much. Ugh. Hi, guys. Let us be Hi, Brett. Hi, Alice. We love you. But no, they've been doing really, really good work um, covering mm. the Chauvin trial. It's I listened to it while I walked Murder Beagle today. Yeah. Because um, I don't get to listen to any of that stuff while I'm actually working with the kids. Right. So it, it's nice to hear the prosecutor's perspective of the decisions that they make and the language mm-hmm. that they use and 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 all of that stuff so yeah that's so interesting i my seniors have been studying uh kendrick lamar's album damn which is oh. the introduction to the album at least is kind of built heavily around police brutality and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing so it's been fascinating to watch my kids who are like very aware mhm but also homogenous, you know, like looking at all the different lenses that one can look at that through. And it's it's cool to see teenagers engaging with that in a real that way. Is cool. That is very cool. Plus, we get to listen to an amazing album in class. So, Oh, yeah. I, you yeah. are the coolest English teacher ever. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. My friend Brad is cooler, but I'm okay. Whatever. Hi, Brad. We've met once. Yeah. <laughs> He's the best. He's the, like the literal best. Uh, I've also been listening to, I don't know why, and you can tell me I'm weird for this. I probably am. But uh, NPR's Throughline did an episode on the life and writing of Octavia Butler. Oh, cool. And I have listened to it probably five times now. Oh. Because, one, I love her so much. Mm-hmm. I love her voice and her thoughts on everything. But something about listening to that episode just gives me a lot of hope. Just the way that she saw the world and the way that she wrote about the world. Her books are some of my absolute favorite in the entire world. Yeah. But when I feel very stressed about the world, I actually like go back and listen to that episode. That's awesome. I need something like that. I found out that I actually get to teach 
one of my favorite books next year, which is amazing. And I was going to like pull it out. It's one of my comfort books. I've had like the same tattered copy of it for oh, like yeah. 15 years. Yeah. But I, I realized that we've packed everything up except for um, three plates, <laughs> three forks, <laughs> three bowls. <laughs> You know, it's been one of those like very heavy periods where I have to put down all of my like very cerebral writing reading. Yeah, today. yeah, absolutely. And just pulp it up, dude. I've been reading If I Disappear, which is about a true crime podcaster who disappears. Shut <laughs> up. I probably you're shouldn't just... be reading that. No, you're, but your it's life good. is already true crime reality enough. I know, dude. I uh, know. Any updates on that front? The latest stuff that's been revealed in the discovery process has been to further solidify the idea of premeditation so we've seen this charge like bounce between murder one and murder two Mm -hmm. but we found out that this person who lived here in indiana but committed the murder in another place had actually ordered the firearm in a third state and flew down to that state to pick up the firearm Hmm. flew back to indiana and waited it out for two weeks before flying out to where the crime was committed. So, mm. yeah. So that's definitely a timeline. Yeah, because my first thought on that is it is pretty easy to get a gun in Indiana. It is uh, excruciatingly easy to get a gun in Indiana, actually. Uh, and, I mean, I think in many ways the number of guns on the street in Chicago is by and large Indiana's fault. Because a oh, lot it's of Indiana people come. And Wisconsin's fault. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people come over here uh, to get guns and bring them back to Illinois. So yep. uh, it's very easy here. But I think she wanted to make sure that it would be as untraceable as possible. So it was like an unregistered gun that traveled like several states, bought mm-hmm. at a pawn shop, like semi-anonymously. Oh yeah, girl. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're waiting on. Yeah, it's it's not looking from from here. It's not looking good. I'll say that. Yep. But this case today doesn't really relate to me, but it is right here in South Bend, Indiana. Yeah, I I forgot how close it was to you. Yeah. It is straight up Mishawaka. It sure is. It took place at the Target that I go to at least three times a week. Oh, my God. Partially, kind of. So, uh, yeah, it's it's right here. And because this is my like penultimate week living in South Bend proper... Uh, that feels weird after 11 years of living here. But yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where our case takes us today. So, uh, you ready to get into it? Yeah. So, do we need to put any uh, kind of content warning? I was just about to, yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. So, yeah, the content warning on this one, you guys, is that this case deals with feticide, the death of an infant, uh, slash pregnancy loss. So, if that is something that is going to be problematic or harmful to you then i would advise giving yourself lots of breaks or coming back you know next week if that's what suits you yep next week will be a less heavy case i promise yeah this one we'll go through some timeline and then we'll go through some court stuff and uh hopefully the thing about this case is that the kind of conversation around it is almost more interesting than the case itself yes Yes, Mm -hmm. I I agree. And so that I actually kind of left open in my narrative because I wanted to leave it open kind of for you to just sink your claws in a little bit. I do know. I know the events of this case Mm -hmm. and I know kind of the major legislative movements of it. 
but yeah. obviously not nearly as closely as you have notes on. Well, it's also like I have notes and then I have my memories of just watching it all play out. Yeah, it was a big, big deal um, around here, just in yeah. like the the Chicago feminist movement. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. So. So if you haven't been able to figure it out already, today we are covering the case of Pervy Patel. So I want to start this off by giving you the definition, the Indiana state legal definition for the term feticide. And I'm going to read it verbatim. Mike Pence's dictionary defines. Exactly. Feticide. Uh, one who commits this is a person who knowingly or intentionally terminates a human pregnancy with an intention other than to produce a live birth or to remove a dead fetus commits feticide, a level three felony. This section does not apply to an abortion performed in compliance with, and then it lists the other statutes that basically spell out, you know, a, a legally sanctioned abortion context. Mm-hmm. So keep that definition in mind. That definition is very, very, very important to us today. So keep that definition in mind. It's going to be really, really important. And I would say even as you're listening to this narrative, just keep in mind kind of the various implications of that definition kind of as we go through the events uh, that are about to unfold. You ready? I am so ready. I'm ready as I'm going to be. Okay. So I'm going to take us to the evening of July 13th, 2013. 32-year-old Pervy Patel walked into the emergency room at St. Joseph Regional Medical Center in Mishawaka, Indiana, seeking care after delivering a baby at home. So before she got to the hospital, she had texted a friend of hers uh, on the way over, just the text, uh, just lost the baby, and then I'm going to clean up my bathroom floor and then go to Moe's. I'll explain what the significance of all of that in just a second. Mm -hmm. So... I want to kind of be able to explain the proximity of all these places. I don't feel like we need like a ton of background information on like the landscape of South Bend is not particularly important to this case. All you really should know is that basically the Michiana region, South Bend and Mishawaka is kind of considered like a Twin Cities region, mm-hmm. even though they're two, they're two smaller cities, but they're two cities that are, you know, squished right next to each other feel like largely interchangeable, but do have kind of two different personalities. So South Bend is like, you know, it's it's the older city. It's much more kind of established, much more diverse, <laughs> much livelier. Mishawaka is smaller, kind of quieter. Both are definitely like, you know, they definitely have like a range of of incomes and things like that, but pretty like kind of all American cities. And then Granger, Indiana is a census designated place that is to the north of both cities and then extends a little bit further east of both and granger is um like i can't afford to live there so (laughs) (laughs) granger is very um it's pretty by and large pretty wealthy like definitely kind of the urban sprawl suburban sprawl kind of place like lots Mm -hmm. of mcmansions and and stuff like that out there so that's Mm -hmm. kind of your landscape here so the saint joe regional medical center in mishawaka is right on the edge of mishawaka and Granger. So it's a big, beautiful hospital. It was actually like fairly brand new right after I moved here. So everything is pretty, pretty new, pretty fancy. That is where uh, my baby had her first ER visit when she bonked her head in the bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's just, I think that's about all the landscape you really need. We'll talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about like some of the lifestyle stuff going on in this case, but the landscape itself is not super crucial. Um, It's pretty, like, happily suburban. 
It's very much so. And this area of Mishawaka and Granger that we're going to be like spending time in is it's a lot of shopping, like big box stores, like along uh, two kind of really busy roads. Uh, and the hospital is kind of right by that shopping district. So uh, Patel, like I said, she's 32. She walks into the ER at St. Joe Regional Medical Center. And the two OBs that were on duty said that she had presented with significant bleeding as the result of some kind of pregnancy loss, but no baby in hand. She also had an umbilical cord still hanging out of her body. So the doctors were pretty flummoxed. Yeah. So obviously, wow, like what a situation, like right off the bat Mm -hmm. to walk into as a doctor. So uh, she told the doctors that she thought she was between like 10 and 12 weeks pregnant and that she had passed a few clots prior to coming to the ER. Mm-hmm. Um, so the two doctors at play here are doctors Tracy Byrne and Kelly McGuire, and they both examined Patel. I think they kind of tag teamed it from what I can yeah. tell, because it's obviously a, a fairly unusual situation. Mm-hmm. So um, that was my impression that they had just kind of been like working together. Now they concluded collectively that she had to have been at least 25 weeks along. I was going to say, that's a lot different from the 10 to 12. It is. Noticeably, um, yeah. Very much so. And Dr. Byrne thought that she must have might have been as much as 30 weeks along. Wow. Okay. So, again, like, the definitions, I find this case really fascinating because of how much the medical stuff comes into play, and I get really geeky about that, especially as relates to the female body and childbirth and, and all that stuff. So for those that don't know, here's a crash course, okay? Um, I'm just going to stop to say, like, I I have, like, legitimate phobic feelings about pregnancy. I know you do. And I'm, like, Mother Earth, but... I know. I know. It's uh, so funny. Yeah. Anyway, do do the pregnancy spiel. Do the medical spiel. It's not going to be much. I Well, it will be much. But right now, it's just going to be... I just want to, like, line out. So, generally speaking, a pregnancy is defined as about 40 weeks long. And there's some give and take in there and what people don't necessarily know I feel like kind of in everyday life is that a lot of that stuff is your doctor's best guess yes so especially like in those early days when they're taking initial measurements and stuff like that like uh, I remember going to my first ultrasound and I was uh, seven weeks pregnant and she measured at five weeks and I was like oh my god oh my god what's wrong what's wrong and it was just like nah just kind of making our best guess you're gonna have a baby in march it's gonna be cool i'm like okay Mm -hmm. so 40 weeks ish is the duration of a typical pregnancy the widely considered age of viability is 24 weeks viability is seen as the state at which that child could survive outside of the uterus given you know the appropriate supports but even that is a percentage of chance mm-hmm. of living and i yes it i think it's a smaller percentage chance than most people recognize yeah viability does not mean like oh okay this is gonna be you know easy peasy yeah no it means that they have a better than not chance of surviving yeah and and there's a long road ahead in those situations mm-hmm. but that 24 week viability date is kind of what makes this dating by these doctors very crucial yes patel thinks she's 10 to 12 weeks pregnant the doctors that are seeing her think that she's at least 25 weeks pregnant Mm -hmm. 
most crucially, when they looked at the umbilical cord, as far as its length and girth and just its general condition, they felt that there had to be a baby somewhere. Mm-hmm. So they just questioned her kind of at the hospital trying to figure out what was going on, just kind of urging her to share, you know, where the baby was. By their opinion, it was definitely going to be beyond the ter- time of viability. It was a warm night. It was July. So they felt like there was a good chance that if they got her to tell them where it was, that they would find a living baby. Mm-hmm. So she told them that she had delivered a baby at home and placed it in a plastic bag and put it in a dumpster behind the Target down the street. This Target is on the same street as the hospital, so probably about like literally four or five minutes away. Yeah. So the doctors called the police, and Dr. McGuire met them at Target, and they all started searching dumpsters for a while, and they found nothing. They searched for, it sounded like about an hour before they had to go back and ask her again to give some more detail, and then she said, to the left of Target. That's a direct quote. So uh, this strip mall, I, I literally am there like so much, but it's basically shaped like a U, Target's the anchor. And then you've got um, of our a whole bunch of other stuff on the other side. <laughs> I know, right? A whole bunch of other stuff on the other side. So if you're to the left of Target, you're kind of facing where the hospital is and the Costco and a bunch of other stuff, like little restaurants and stuff. That took police and Dr. McGuire to a dumpster behind a Moe's Southwest grill, which is where she had texted her friend that she was going, right? Mm-hmm. So this happens to be the franchise that was owned by her parents that she managed with her brother. Within the dumpster, they did find a plastic bag that was sealed shut with blood. Um, Inside was a deceased male baby that, aside from being deceased, the doctor said looked like a healthy baby. That was probably about 30 weeks gestation at the time of its death. Wow. Yeah. He said that looking at it, Uh, It looked probable that it probably would have moved and made noise upon its birth. And then there was also an airline boarding pass in Purvi Patel's name in the bag. Mm -hmm. So there was certainly no refuting that, you know, that was that was hers. Yeah. So obviously that's a rough, a rough scene for that doctor, like Mm -hmm. pretty intense. So so there's kind of like two things going on concurrently. There's Dr. McGuire at the. At the scene, you know, behind the Moe's with the dumpsters. And then there's all the medical stuff kind of still happening at the hospital with Bravi Patel. So mm-hmm. she was given an ultrasound to see what else might be going on internally. And she was found to still have held on to the placenta. She had not delivered the placenta. So her uterus was just full of blood and tissue. So she was immediately admitted to surgery. And there's not a lot kind of out there about that particular time frame. Mm-hmm. Because I can't imagine that she was probably super chatty during the time frame of that surgery that she had to have because from what i've heard like when the placenta stays in it's just it that is painful painful and dangerous dangerous Um, yeah yeah because once the once your water breaks like the ticking clock is kind of like Mm -hmm. doctors are always really nervous about that 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 because of infection Mm -hmm. so so that's why they had to just get her straight back there you know, while that was going on, they were able to weigh the placenta, which is really important. It tells you about, you know, kind of like the health of the placenta and everything. Mm-hmm. The placenta weighed in about 231 grams, which uh, matches up to about 26 to 27 weeks of gestation. Okay. Um, according to the pathologist that performed that little weigh-in of the placenta, her name was Dr. Bobby Sutton. 
I'm obsessed with placentas, so I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, you think I'm so weird. Sorry. No, this no, it's my this is my stuff. This is this is me. Yeah. You're normal. I am broken. Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't eat mine or anything, although I totally support that. But I definitely, like, they showed it to me, and I was like, no, don't take it away. I want to poke it and, like, play with it. I thought it was rad. I mean, that's how I feel about brains. Like, I just want to poke them and cut them up and whatever. Yeah. The body does amazing things. I assume this kind of happened as she was – you know, being roused from the surgery and just in that kind of subsequent couple of days. So when she was questioned at the hospital about what happened that day, she told, I think, a combination of doc, mostly doctors at this point. Like, I don't think she's speaking to police. Mm -hmm. So she told hospital staff that the pregnancy was the result of a random hookup. But even despite that, she was excited to have a baby. And then she said that that day she had had cramps and then a strong urge to pee and then when she went to the bathroom, it was like an uncontrollable thing that just happened. And uh, her quote is, everything came out before she got a chance to get to the toilet. So she said that when that happened, that the baby had been motionless and silent um, mm-hmm. upon its exit from the uterus. She described it as limp. And that she did not attempt CPR for that reason because it looked like a lost cause to mm-hmm. her at that point. Although she did try to open and close its mouth. She did state that. CPR in a baby is also really terrifying. Yeah, I can imagine. Just doing the trainings for that is like, oh, it's It's not terrifying. pleasant. It's, yeah. And so imagine like a, a preterm, pre-full-term baby. Yeah. I, I can't see somebody immediately wanting to do CPR, knowing to do CPR. Right, yeah. Like springing to action. Like I feel like that's kind of a, that's a fantasy. Like we all want to think that we could just like, yes, I'm just going to be like, I'm going to boss up and like know exactly what mm-hmm. to do in a moment like that. And then I feel like when you're faced with a moment like that, there's a really good chance you're going to freeze. Yes. Yes. You know. So at this point, all the doctors are interviewing her. Mm-hmm. How does HIPAA play into like the revealing of all of this information? I think that's a really good question. So my understanding is that... Uh, So doctors Byrne and McGuire involved the police really early because they were thought they were looking for, you know, a missing and endangered child. So my understanding, HIPAA goes as far as humanly possible, but can it go as far as um, endangering, you know, another human life? Yeah, I'm sure the medical field has something similar, but for mental health, there is a there's always a duty to report law that mm-hmm. like HIPAA stops where there is a need to protect somebody. Yeah, yeah. And that's my understanding of a situation like this too. And then I think like from there there probably just had to be kind of a cascade because mm-hmm. you know what happens next is that police are able to obtain a search warrant because mm-hmm. they don't know the situation surrounding the birth of this deceased infant that they have, you know, in their hands. But they do know who its mother was. So mm-hmm. even if there was a perfectly natural and normal situation kind of going on here, hypothetically, and she lost her infant at home just due to like a random stillbirth, discarding its body in a dumpster is still a crime. So there's still a crime committed here. So mm-hmm. that's where I think it gets kind of really murky mm-hmm. in that case, you know. And I think also at the end of the day, if 
she made an ethics complaint against the doctors for violating HIPAA, I think the doctors would take that on the chin. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm being completely honest. And I think, like, their lawyers would defend them for that violation. Yeah, yeah. And I I could see looking at their – just looking at their perspective here – Mm-hmm. That I, I feel like the thought process would be like, there's no way that this is going to blow back up in my face, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I couldn't imagine a situation where it honestly would, like, given the circumstances here. So, because you're always like, oh, call, like, Child Protection or DCFS or whatever it is. But they're like, no, straight to the police right now. Yeah, pretty much. Because, I mean, it's obviously a, a significantly different situation. So, mm-hmm. so that does kind of lead into the next thing that happened, which was that... Uh, authorities obtained a search warrant to go search the Patel home. Mm -hmm. So uh, Pervy Patel lived in Granger, which I described earlier, with her parents and her brother and her paternal grandparents, so quite a few people in the house. Mm -hmm. So they got to the house, and in the house they basically found a bathroom that reflected her story kind of to the letter. There was an amount of blood in the bathroom, a bath mat with blood on it, a towel, and a pair of underwear. So it corroborated kind of what she said. When they searched her iPad, they found something that would complicate the story, just being that of maybe an unfortunate, rare, albeit possible pregnancy loss uh, to something a bit more nuanced. What they found in her email was a receipt from internationaldrugmart.com, mm-hmm. and she had ordered one mifepristone pill and four misoprostol pills from China. For those that don't know, those are the two drugs used to induce a medical abortion. So I'm going to get a little bit medical geeky because, again, I love this stuff. I like this part. So mifepristone works by blocking progesterone, Mm -hmm. a hormone necessary for the continuation of pregnancy, basically. It's, wow, when your progesterone is going, (laughs) life is hard. (laughs) Life life is just hard. (laughs) Um... Yeah. <laughs> so um, mifepristone, like I said, works by blocking progesterone. And misoprostol uh, causes the uterus to contract and the cervix to soften. Mm-hmm. So in the situation of a medical abortion, like done in a healthcare setting, this combination of drugs is typically able to be administered up to the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the patient will be given one dose of each, the mifepristone first, and then the misoprostol, because the mifepristone basically stops the pregnancy from continuing. And the misoprostol kind of inspires your body to, to begin to release it, basically. Mm-hmm. Both drugs have other uses. I think that's really important to specify. Yes. And we're not making any kind of political stances right now. I just want to say that these drugs have other clinical uses aside from abortions. And also they um, are off- very often used safely for abortions. Yes, absolutely. For example, like I've taken misoprostol as part of my induction when I had my baby. I was wondering if that was the same one that they give you. Oh, yes. Dr. Big Hands, four times. I don't remember his actual name. <laughs> Just remember that his hands. That sounds like a terrible experience. <laughs> Just my, oh my gosh. name. <laughs> this guy had these like baseball mitts of hands. He was a resident. And he had to give me the misoprostol directly on the cervix. Oh, oh my Mr. God. Big Hands. And he would just look up at me. And one time he goes, we did this four times because my body was not having it. But he was like, I am so sorry, sweetheart. And I was like, <laughs> if you're so sorry, then can you please get a small nurse to do this? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Can I leave that in? Oh, Absolutely. 
Um, Because it it, it was – I put that in my notes for a reason. Like, it's important to know that those drugs have other applications. Uh, Whatever your stance is on abortion, those drugs have other uses in a medical setting that do not have to do with abortion. So if you're a pro-life person, you're not angry at those drugs. I just want to specify that. It's never the drugs' fault. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, those are important drugs. Now, in the typical medical abortion setting, you're given one dose of each, uh, usually about 24 to 36 hours apart. You're given one dose at the clinic, and then you, you might take your second dose at home, or you might come back to take your second dose, depending on, you know, kind of the, the patient's comfort level and the the doctors administering the drugs. But she had ordered one of the mifepristone and four of the misoprostol. So they found that. So then they were able to complete an autopsy of the infant. So Dr. Joseph Prello was the forensic pathologist uh, who had this task. And his four major findings are these, okay, that they were looking at about 25 weeks of gestation, which matches up with what the placenta was looking like, that it was likely to have been born alive and breathed outside of the uterus, Mm-hmm. That there was no maceration or decomposition that would suggest having been deceased in utero, and that he concluded that he thought it was death by homicide caused by extreme prematurity, that's in quotes, um, along with a lack of essential health care, and then either hypo or hyperthermia, blood loss from the sovereign umbilical cord, or asphyxia from being in the bag. Okay. So that's kind of a lot, but any of those three could have been to his mind, you know, what what ended up, you know, causing the death of the infant. Okay. I have questions, but we'll probably get to them later. Yes. So your questions might lead to my next note because the big question is, okay, how could you know whether or not the baby had breathed outside of the body? Is that where your head's at? Yes, because that's the difference between it dying in utero and it dying after. Right. Yeah. In utero and ex utero. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that's the big question. So to determine that, Dr. Prallo performed what is called a lung float test. So to do that, basically what they do is they take the lungs and the liver and they put them both in the water. So the, the liver is kind of like a control, how mm-hmm. I understand it. Yep. And so if the lungs float, then that signifies that they had contained air, that they had breathed yes. air. Because otherwise they have roughly the same density. Exactly. Yeah. So if both float, something else is going on. Mm-hmm. And that's a null and void kind of test. If they both sink, uh, then it would be commonly concluded that those lungs had never breathed air. Yes. So he performed that test and the liver sank and the lungs floated. So uh, that was what caused him to, to get to that conclusion. The other thing that I've heard people get kind of confused about is how the blood loss from the umbilical cord would work. Mm -hmm. And basically, like, what happens is uh, in a typical, like, birth situation, they clamp the umbilical cord so that the blood inside of it pumps back into the baby before they sever it. Yep. In a situation where that doesn't happen, if the umbilical cord is cut without being clamped, uh, there's basically an exsanguination through the umbilical cord. And that's a lot of blood for a little, little baby. It is. Like, like we don't think about a lot of blood being in the umbilical cord, but it is. Especially it's a for lot. Like a 25-week fetus or preemie, whatever we're going yeah. to call it. It's actually pretty unreal if you see it unfold. Like, mm-hmm. 
the color change. Like they put my baby on my chest and they still had her cord on. Mm-hmm. And then after they clamped it and cut it, it was like she like blossomed with color. Like she was just this like purple <laughs> little rotisserie chicken and then all of a sudden she's got color. I mean, it's pretty – It's you can tell it's a lot. Yeah. And actually there was so much blood loss that it was not possible for Dr. Prallo to extract even a vial uh, of blood from the body itself. Wow. Yeah. So as a result of basically that entire kind of mini investigation process, um, Pervy Patel was charged with felony neglect of a dependent for her failure to obtain medical care. And she was given those charges on July 17th. So she got to the hospital on July 13th and mm-hmm. she was charged with that on the 17th. So just a matter of four days. Yep. Well, they're basically collecting all the evidence and doing all of those tests. Exactly. Yep. At this point, investigators have to figure out like what what led us here how did we get here um all that stuff so i want to talk a little bit about kind of her background and how we got here okay pervy patel was born in 1980 to uh, nick and kunja patel they're both immigrants from india they first moved to maryland and then eventually settled in granger indiana as restaurateurs basically so they owned that moe's spot i think they owned some other franchises i'm not totally sure i think one of the kind of unfortunate side effects of all this going down was that like i don't remember quite how fast it was but like that Moe's was closed down for good like within weeks of all this happening um so and 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 by and large her family have stayed kind of out of the media Mm -hmm. so there's not a ton that you can kind of get from them necessarily whatever there is i you know I'll, i'll share but that's, yeah. that's got to be hard on that whole family. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. They were definitely very devout Hindus. And it was certainly the hope of her parents that she and her brother would both kind of go down like the traditional route that they taught, you know, in their home as far as marriage and children, especially, mm-hmm. um, and work and lifestyle too. Like they're kind of all about this family business. Like the two, um, Pervy and her brother managed the most together brother's name is rick so it seemed to me like they had a kind of a very strong like family vibe like this is what we do this is what Mm -hmm. we believe in that kind of space Um, yeah now the hindu faith is really interesting as far as sex goes sex itself is like definitely kind of a part of spiritual life Mm -hmm. but there is also largely taught there's no sex outside of marriage okay and her parents also had a strong preference that um, when she did get married, that it was to another Hindu. Yeah. So um, so that was definitely kind of like one of the things that kind of puzzled me about this case, especially when it was happening, was like, girl, you're 32. Like, where are we as far as like kind of making your own decisions and having your own lives, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I think I just had to kind of check myself from a cultural perspective. Um, yeah. You know? So... I mean, in some families, like, that's not odd that you do live with your parents until you are married mm-hmm. and until you start your own family. Multi-generational households are just the norm and the typical thing. Yeah. So you mentioned that she lives with, like, the grandparents mm-hmm. and the aunt and uncle are there as well. Yeah, just yeah. the grandparents. But, yeah, everyone's there. And her brother and her parents. And, yeah, so you've got that multi-generational home. You've got just, you know, I think, like, a really tight-knit kind of family base. But yeah, it was I felt like it was a really kind of important moment for me to just like stop and like check myself like, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. also 32, but definitely like a very different 
relationship to me, you know so I was like what but but yeah I just it was I appreciated that moment of checking myself so there you go that's what we live for heck yeah so like I said like she and her brother managed the Moe's um which is like a a chain of like Chipotle-esque mm-hmm. type of restaurants I I went in there once it you know it didn't do as well as the Chipotle which I think probably contributed to why it shut down along with this case but um <laughs> But it seemed to me, from what I could tell, um, that that job, like, it came easily to her. Like, she enjoyed working with her brother. Um, he was an IU grad, and then she had been working in banking prior to managing the restaurant. So, you know, just lots of, like, good experience, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that because of the stringentness of her household, she didn't have a lot of people to talk to. Basically, when she began an affair uh, with a married man from Mexico who worked at the restaurant that person would not check kind of any of the family boxes, right? It seemed to me, like, just reading through the court documents, I could find that her lifeline in all of this was really a friend of hers named Felicia Turnbow. Felicia went by Faye. She is a healthcare worker. She lives in Michigan, but not far away. And I think the fact that she was a healthcare worker kind of helped Pervy Patel, like, in this situation, too. So... Uh, she had told Faye a bit about their relationship because she had to have somebody to talk to, right? Mm-hmm. So she had shared some of it, and that was the friend that she had texted on the way to the hospital. And basically, investigators kind of dug further and were able to somewhat trace the last few months of the pregnancy through her conversations with Faye over text. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to go through next. And I'm going to read a lot of text messages here. So, uh, But the timeline, I think, is really pretty important so Mm -hmm. on april 15 2013 patel texted turnbow cramps coming and going my cycle is changing completely due to all the stress i've been under lately so not sure when my period is coming but still feeling the pain a few days later on the 19th she said man i'm cramping again my period's been so funny the last two months because of my stress spot and then stops but the cramps come and go the cramps are the worst part So this is mid-April. A little over a month later, on May 21st, she said, I keep cramping bad, but then my period won't start. It's driving me crazy. It's been like this for two weeks now. Tired of the pain. So uh, Faye replies, you might want to go to the doctor. Patel responds, don't like doctors, LOL. (laughs) Girl, same. I think it's because (laughs) of all the stress my body has been going through, physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. So two weeks later on June 4th, Pervy Patel told Faye Turnbow that she had not had an appetite for a while. And then she indicated that she thought she might be pregnant, but that she hoped not. So Turnbow asked, have you missed? And Patel said, I've been cramping like crazy for weeks now, so I'm hoping it's because of stress. Turnbow responds, take a test with five exclamation points. <laughs> That's a good friend right there. Um, yeah, it sounds like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Patel responded back, hoping it all just goes away, LOL. On June 10th, she took a pregnancy test. As far as what the text, me- text messages tell us, what she said to Turnbow was, quote, it didn't even take a minute for it to show uh, that she was pregnant. And my fam would kill me and him. You already know I can't have it. So Turnbow said, now first we got to get you to a doctor. This may be something your body is deciding on its own. 
You can go to the urgent care place even and tell them that you took a test and it shows positive, but you're cramping bad and spotting. They will do an ultrasound and let you know, then we will go from there. So Turnbow is like on her side. It's this like we. I love it. I know. Good friend. Mm-hmm. She's just like, here's the steps we're going to take. Girl, I got your back. Yeah. I love that friend. But Patel stated, I'd rather not even go to a doc. Just want to get it over with. Turnbow replies, I understand that, but for your health, you should go to a doctor first. So that was all on June 10th. The conversation dries up for a few days. On June 16th, Patel tells Turnbow, by the way, I just realized I've missed two, as in two periods. Oh, wow. This is why I think she got to the time frame that she got to, roughly. I was cu- I was really curious about that because when she first said like 10 to 15 mm-hmm. weeks, I was like, does she honestly believe that it's 10 to 15 weeks? Because that's believable. Yeah. yeah I mean, I the way I took that was like, if she's like, okay, I missed two periods, that would get you to eight weeks. And and she yeah. talks about how um, like inconsistent her periods are and stuff like that. So if you're inconsistent or your periods are long, it kind of stands to reason. Not everybody is a clock like yeah. I am. <laughs> or me. <laughs> like, man, it's just like, boop, okay. Um, but she also, she talks about stress a lot. And I think we can forget mm-hmm. how much that can have a huge impact on your reproductive oh, God, yeah. stuff. I can think of two really stressful stages in my life in the past two years. And I straight up skipped a period just from the stress. So I could see that being, you know, if she's irregular already, I could see that making sense mm-hmm. for her, you know. It's very, very easy to, like, for that to be your first mm-hmm. go-to. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Especially if you're used to that. And it sounds like she kind of was, you know. Mm-hmm. You'll hear people judge, like, oh, how did you not know you were pregnant, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, not everybody has a consistent yeah, period. no, not at all. And they are so, those bitches are fickle. Yes, yes. And that show on TLC is actually really interesting. I didn't know I was pregnant because they will go through, like, a lot of the reasons that you might not know Mm -hmm. like sometimes it's just like the person's size like they didn't show other times it would be something like one where the person had um an inverted uterus and that caused the baby to yeah that caused the uh, pregnancy to be held further back in the body like tucked in more like in the middle so it wouldn't poke out so that's fascinating you just gave me another thing to be afraid of (laughs) what the hell well you know don't get pregnant then yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm trying so <laughs> I know. hard. Well, you've made it this far. So back to our <laughs> friends here. So on the 19th, Turnbow told Patel that a clinic in South Bend had the pill for that. And boy, was that clinic struggling to stay open, let me tell you. Yes, they yes. were. Um, but I think at this time the clinic was still up. Um, so she's right. She said it would probably cost between three or 400 or something like that. Patel had already done her research. She said, she said, it's only within 60 days. I might be over that. So it was mm-hmm. later that day that she ordered the Mifepristone and the Misoprostol. And she ordered that from the pharmacy in China for $72 um, and had the package shipped to Moe's so that no one would find out. I also want to stop and say three to $400 is so much It's money. huge. Yeah, that is really huge. That's huge. And you know your insurance ain't going to help you. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. No, yeah. it won't. And that the clinic that Turnbow was talking about, just anecdotally, would be the only abortion care provider in the South Bend area. 
they only were able to do medical abortions. They were not able to do like DNCs and they were only open for like four hours a week. What? Yeah. I mean, they, it was just, it was uh. a, it was a struggle that place. So like I said, she ordered the Mifepristone and the Misoprostol on June 19th. And that was when she told Felicia Turnbow that she had ordered it. So on June 27th, she vented to Turnbow. And remember that Turnbow is the only person that she talks to about this at all. So if it seems kind of heavy handed, mm-hmm. like that's that's her person in this situation. That's all she has. We all have that. Exactly. One We're talking to our one person. <laughs> And if I was in, like, a weird, crazy medical emergency situation, you would get every Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, yeah, I've, I've heard a little bit of critique that's like, gosh, you just, like, really told her everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's her friend in this, you know. On June 27, she's, she had a series of texts that would c- kind of feel incriminating. So she told Turnbow that she wanted her boyfriend and the baby, quote, out of her life. And that some people will point to that text, that particular string of texts, as kind of damning. So that was on the 27th. On July 1st, she told Turnbow, my package came. So I assume somewhere in there that Turnbow asked, like, okay, when are you going to take them? Mm-hmm. Um, on July 3rd, Patel said that she wouldn't do it until um, after she returned to, from a, ship, a trip to Chicago um, because she didn't want to be in pain while she was at, like, a work meeting. Okay. She was meeting with vendors in Chicago, and she didn't want to be in pain during that. So about a week later, on July 10th, she told Turnbow that um, her online research told her, and this is the part that really kind of stinks about ordering it from, like, kind of a dark web international pharmacy website, is that you have no medical guidance, right? Exactly. You're just really going off what people on the internet say, and that's not trustworthy. No, it's scary. And that's what she did. She told Turnbow that her online research told her that she would take one Mifepristone in the morning and then two Misoprostols one or two or three days later. And then if it wasn't working, that she would take more Misoprostol after another few hours, which is why she bought so much of the Misoprostol. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a lot. Mm -hmm. And then if that doesn't work, then we will have to take a trip, is what she said. Okay. At 10.34 a.m., Patel told Turnbow that she took the Mifepristone. So that's all um, July 10th, all right? Okay. So at 5.22 on July 11th, she told Turnbow that she took two Misoprostols. And then over the next couple of days, she had awful cramps, some bleeding, but that she felt like she needed to take more Misoprostol. So on the 12th, she took more. And then this is also kind of interesting so the same evening on the 12th she visited a website that was called the national abortion federation abortion after 12 weeks which will also be used to stipulate that she knew she was further than 10 or 12 weeks along i know we talked about this but when did she she think when did she finally kind of like admit okay i think i might be pregnant so let me go back to that date i think it matters and it doesn't matter right yeah as far as what kind of medical care could she or should she have gotten Mm -hmm. but again it's like did she know what to do with that indiana isn't sorry the best state for sexual education 
No, yeah. it's not. So she took the pregnancy test on June 10th. So we're almost exactly a month later. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So when she told Turnbow about that originally, like in that early to mid-June time span, she said, mm-hmm. I think I've missed two periods. Yeah. Okay. So if we follow that timeline, then July 11th would put her at three months so that's why I assume that would be why she was Googling, like, what would this look like after 12 weeks? Oh, three months is also just about 12 weeks, so. Yeah, well, they count it from the date of your last period. But she's not counting it that but way. But she's not, yeah. So she's probably thinking about it as 12 weeks, even though from a medical standpoint, mm-hmm. it's closer to 18. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So a doctor would tell you that she would, 18 or whatever right but again so, that's that's the difference between a lay person and a medical provider and the knowledge exactly. gap. yeah yes exactly and even just you know when there is a lack of education about that kind of stuff how would you know how mm-hmm. a pregnancy is measured you know mm-hmm. because it's not intuitive like no it's really not <laughs> i was really confused when i was pregnant with my beautiful toddler when the doctor asked when was my last period and i'm like let me open my app so I can tell you, but like, why are you asking? Mm-hmm. And that's how they date it. So yeah, that's not necessarily common knowledge, even for people that are like make a deliberate, you know, mm-hmm. gesture towards being very educated about that stuff. Yeah. So later that evening at 7.07, she told Turnbow that she was trying to go to the hospital, but she couldn't get out of bed. She was in that much pain. Turnbow said, you need to go. And then again, very shortly after, are you going to go? At 7.42, Patel says, I want to, but I can't drive. And then about uh, half an hour later at 8.11, she said, just lost the baby. And then that's where the text um, that I opened with, I'm going to clean the bathroom floor and then go to Moe's. That's where we kind of pick up here. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Felicia Turnbull, like I said before, asked, was it still a clot or starting to form, which I think is probably her way of also asking, you know, where do we think we are here as far as how far along we are? And she replied, starting to form a little, more so big clots, though. Um, But we do know that that wasn't the entire truth, that she had, in fact, delivered a baby boy um, who measured about a foot long and weighed a little bit less than one and a half pounds. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that whole span of time is pretty um, stirring. So that's that's um, a lot. That's intense. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said before, she had been, you know, apprehended for for the neglect charge, essentially. However, on August. So we're going to fast forward now to August 2014. So this charge of feticide was not on the original docket for Pervy Patel. Mm -hmm. The feticide charge was added a year later. Okay. So we have to keep in mind that definition of feticide, which again, a person who knowingly or intentionally terminates a human pregnancy with an intention other than to produce a live birth or to remove a dead fetus commits feticide, a level three felony. So they added that level three felony quite a while later. Mm-hmm. So uh, her trial started late January to early February 2015. Mm-hmm. 
And the prosecution's case was basically what I just dragged out, um, <laughs> what I just presented. All that series of events, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty much the entirety of the case. So what's interesting is what her defense has to say, mm-hmm. right? The defense's best bet in her case was to cast a shadow of a doubt on all of the medical testimony against Pervy Patel, right? Yes. So her attorney was this guy, Jeff Sanford, and he brought to the stand a very highly regarded forensic pathologist from Chicago, Dr. Shaku Tace. And Dr. Tace testified that she had done over 6,000 autopsies in her 30-plus year career, many of them on babies. So... Mm -hmm. They definitely established her as very much so an expert, and she yeah. is just, like, widely considered to be, you know, at the top of the field, for sure. She's very, very well-known in her field, yeah. <laughs> so uh, she was brought in, essentially, to particularly poke holes in the lung float test. Yes. So the lung float test is not considered within that field to be reliable. Correct. And Dr. Tace will tell us why. So... She said that false positives are very possible and that the baby's lungs to her did not look developed enough for breathing um, and that, that that baby would have even had difficulties on a respirator. Mm-hmm. So it's not even that there was a guarantee that had the baby made it to the hospital that they would have even done okay on a respirator. She also said that many stillborn babies will actually show evidence of taking a breath just by virtue of reflex, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's not so much taking a breath as as it is, like, a spasm. Yeah, it's that, like, involuntary movement. Yeah. That's basically a byproduct of the first stages of decomposition. Yeah. So um, she brought that up as well, that sometimes those first stages of decomposition, there is that spasmodic stuff that happens that that can bring in air, Mm -hmm. basically. So uh, for all of those reasons, she's like, we don't trust the lung flow test. Yeah. So, um... Why did you do it, right? Um, (laughs) She made a strong statement with that. And then she said, when she was looking at autopsy photos, she said, and this is a direct quote, I would say that more than likely this is not a viable fetus. So to her mind, um, even if the baby had been born alive, it probably was not, in her opinion, going to be compatible with life. Yeah. So... (sighs) yeah so that is what she kind of came in to really establish right away and then she goes on to talk about um how dr prallo the forensic pathologist on the prosecution side the one that originally did the autopsy and the lung flow test said that the umbilical cord his thought was that it was cut by a sharp but irregular instrument I don't okay. know what would be sharp, but a regular. Anything like, um, a, like a steak knife or a serrated edge? Yeah, like a serrated knife, yeah. Any kind of just like unsharpened, dull thing. Yeah, but she also said that that didn't necessarily look consistent with what she saw, that it also could have been, could have broken, which can happen, okay. um, or been pulled apart. So, Ew. yeah, that's pretty, um, umbilical cords are really cool, but yikes, that's... That's a visual that is haunting. Yeah, I don't like that mental image. No, no. Anyway, go ahead. Um, So she said that her biggest question mark was, okay, like how can we call this homicidal violence as a cause of death when there was not enough evidence to conclude even one of the three possible mechanisms of death that Dr. Prallo had noted, which Mm -hmm. were exposure, 
asphyxiation or blood loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially I take that to mean like, you know, he proposed those three potential causes of death that were specific to homicidal violence, but wasn't able to prove that any one of them was an actual cause of death. And I feel like when you're offering three different causes of death, but one of them kind of negates the other, mm-hmm. I do feel like that is a really bad prosecution strategy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think we do have to remember that this is, and it is an Indiana courtroom. Yeah, and, yeah. We have to think um, about the cultural piece here. Yeah, we definitely do. And, you know, her parents, speaking of the cultural piece, like they did take to the stand and they testified that they would have loved her baby, even if the situation was not necessarily what they had hoped for. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were very assertive in that stance, you know, despite the strictness and stringentness with which she was kind of raised, right? Yeah. Um, so interestingly of course like the chief prosecutor is going to come in and try to poke holes in dr Teus. so they spent a lot of time analyzing this table that she used to measure how far along the baby would have been mm-hmm. um which was based partially on very very old data yeah and that his argument was that the better table the better standard would have put the baby between 24 and 26 weeks which you know, helps their case, certainly. And and hers was more like, she didn't make a hard and fast number as far as how many weeks she thought it was, basically. Yeah. So they also um, interrogated her pretty heavily about how much she was paid to be there. I thought you weren't allowed to do that. Uh, it's Indiana. Are there rules here? There should be. Yeah, there should Every be. Every expert witness is paid to be there. Yeah. Exactly. Like, if I am an expert witness, I'm paid to be there. Because the prosecutors mm-hmm. brought that up in the George Floyd case. Yeah, Maybe they it wasn't did. the George Floyd one, but yeah. I mean, it could be that... Could be by state. And Indiana sucks. It could be. And it also could have been that it was asked and then stricken from the record, but that the source I pulled it from still had the transcript. Yeah. okay. So that's, that's also possible. Um, so that is essentially the case and her parents were brought in to testify for her again that um that they would have loved the baby um Mm -hmm. so you know despite all of those efforts she was convicted and sentenced to 20 years on that feticide charge yeah so then comes the uproar right oh yes this was an uproar yes the case against pervy patel took off in news media across the country, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure many listeners will remember seeing, Mm -hmm. right? And essentially, a lot of the crux of those articles and arguments was this idea that Pervy Patel was being punished for pregnancy, Mm -hmm. that she was being sentenced to 20 years for a stillbirth, Mm-hmm. And that that criminalizes pregnancy in women's bodies in a way that is very, very dangerous for us culturally. And I think what happened was another one of those things of like, hey, there is like a very serious discussion to have here on the facts. But mm-hmm. rather than having that discussion, it kind of got skewed. I think what's also really interesting about this case and kind of how like it it really exploded. It really blew up. Mm-hmm. But um, not long 
before, Indiana had another feticide case with fairly similar circumstances, Mm -hmm. even down to the fact that uh, this was a first-generation woman. Um, She, her name is Bebe Shui, Mm -hmm. and she attempted suicide and in the process of her attempt she lost her i think it was a 30-week gestation so she had a a stillbirth as a result of the method of suicide that she tried which was rat poisoning and she was also charged with feticide and between both cases it really calls into question what the purpose of that feticide statute really is yes And that is something that is really important that we talk about right now. Mm -hmm. So the intention of a feticide law is the spirit of that law is to protect. um, Well, I should say not protect. The spirit of that law is to prosecute people who uh, victimize pregnant women. Yes. um, And who commit acts of violence against them. So a feticide charge would traditionally be applied to somebody who committed an act of violence against a pregnant woman mm-hmm. who in turn lost her fetus. Mm-hmm. So it is not traditionally applied to a situation like this. There's sublines in the statute that direct you to the other statutes that talk about legal abortion in the state. It's an incredibly long statute because it knows mm-hmm. how many loopholes there could be in it. Yeah. But yeah, it yeah, was totally. meant not to punish a pregnant woman, but to punish somebody who tried to hurt that pregnant woman. Exactly. Exactly. So that became, I think, most of the nature of the the uproar. What else did you, like, read and think about this while it was going down? I remember the initial reports that I were seeing really focused on, on essentially that she lost the child due to an at-home abortion. Mm-hmm. And that that was where the feticide kind of charges came from. And again, there's much more to the story than that. That is a, that is a portion of the story. But it kind of more focused on the at-home abortion side of things. And then the discussion yeah. fell to, well, what is Indiana's role here as a healthcare provider? Mm-hmm. The story very quickly, and I, again, I kind of go two ways on it, of like focus on the story versus focus on the politics. Mm-hmm. But the story kind of very quickly went to where else would this person have to have gone? And I think that that is a really interesting question that is so much more like nuanced than we want to think of it as, yes. right? So like the facts of the case are that mm-hmm. she did in fact order that medication and mm-hmm. she administered an abortion at home. Yeah. Based on the information that we have and her text messages, I don't know that I believe that she thought that she was 26 weeks along. I don't think that she had any idea she was 26 weeks along. I tend to agree. I think, yes, she did perform an at-home abortion. And I think that she really did believe that she was under 20 weeks. I really do. Yeah, Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. And, like, when we have that access to care question, like, Felicia Turnbow did tell her about the clinic in town Mm -hmm. that would provide the medical abortion at three to four hundred dollars um there are no abortion clinics within an hour of south bend that will perform a dnc really none yeah so you'd have to go to chicago or grand rapids yeah so like she had access to 
on a technical sense, she had access to some kind of care. Yes. However, did she know that she had access to it? And is it still access if your ability to get that care would be conspicuous? Mm-hmm. Especially if conspicuousness on that is in some way makes you feel endangered with your relationship to your family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a complicating factor, too, which obviously the law doesn't care. But yeah, yeah. But I think that that's that's kind of the nuance of the conversation about access to my mind. Like, did she technically have access? Like, she has money. She has a vehicle. Could she take a day off and technically get to Chicago and get checked out? Yes. Did she know that? I don't know. Did she feel safe doing that? I don't know. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, we talked in the very beginning about like, okay, she's like 32, so whatever, she can, she should know certain things or be more independent or whatever. But where would she have learned these things? Right. It's such a messy case. It is. And, you know, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, this is bullshit and she needs to be freed and blah, blah, blah. I still think that the case is kind of like the the 20 years was ridiculous. Yeah. I I still think like if you can't punish at-home abortion, if you really believe in a woman's bodily autonomy, you cannot punish that mm-hmm. in at-home abortion. Yeah. Do I still agree with what she did and kind of all of the at-home stuff and the way that she handled it afterward? I don't love it. Yeah. It hurts my heart. Yeah, it hurts my heart too. And I think um, I think it's interesting to think about a case like this through a pro-life versus pro-choice mm-hmm. lens. Yeah. Um, because I think that, that where you fall in those two sets of lenses, mm-hmm. in this case, it's not that simple, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it feels that simple in the abstract or it feels that simple you know when somebody goes and gets those pills for a five-week pregnancy or something like that yeah that I think in the eyes of pro-choice people that feels simple for one reason and the Mm -hmm. eyes of pro-life people it feels simple for another reason Mm -hmm. something like this I feel like is you you can't have any lens where this isn't like wildly nuanced yeah you know because I think even the staunchest pro-life person wouldn't want to see a woman punished for a stillbirth if that's what happened. You know, there's there's extremes on everything, but the generally agreed is, you know, once the baby is kind of on breathing on its own, mm-hmm. then it's no longer part of your body. The question is, did this baby ever breathe on its own? Right. And, and, then, and then what think, would she have done afterward? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that the... So I have two thoughts about that. So... Um, I think that question of viability is also really, really interesting from a medical perspective because the last thing that develops is the surfactants in your lungs. That's Mm -hmm. the last thing that happens to you before you pop out. Yeah. So a 24-week fetus, which is the age of viability, does not have surfactants in their lungs. Correct. So the breathing is the most difficult thing when they come earthside. Mm Mm-hmm. Their heart beats, their blood flows, you know, they have kidney function, liver function, they have digestion, all that stuff. What they, they don't have, little have brain is functional spurts. lungs. Yeah. Yeah. So what they don't have is functional lungs. Mm-hmm. So just based on that, which I'm not a medical doctor, mm-hmm. um, so this is just like my geeky 
like self knowledge and self education. Um, and that was like the reason that when I was, when they were like fighting over when to induce me, um, that was the reason to keep her in there for as long as possible. Because even at 36 mm-hmm. weeks, yeah. they still were not sure she would have enough surfactants in her lungs to not need a ventilator. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that that's always the question with babies. And they'll always yeah. try to push it. Yeah, as far as they can. So I think that just from like my layperson's medical knowledge, I would have a really hard time believing that that baby breathed an independent breath. I do too. Just based on that. Um, but Pervy Patel did, in her own testimony, make an attempt to open its mouth. Uh-huh. I think she was too freaked out to try to do a CPR. Um, her statement was that um, she could tell it was a lost cause, but I have to think that probably you were also just like really freaked out, you know? Yeah, well, but also that makes me think if she tried to open its mouth, that she did want it to live. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's a gesture mm-hmm. of tenderness um, yeah. to my mind. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, then there's panic and there's trauma and there's, you know, you're not thinking in your right mind. And yeah. When it comes to, like, the, the lung development and the prematurity, like, I work in pediatrics and I see kids that, you know, were born at 20, 24 weeks. And that's a long road ahead. We're talking about you're in an incubator from the moment the doctor catches you. Yeah, exactly. And even then, it's touch and go. Yeah. And there will probably be after effects that last for a very, very long time. I guess all that to say, I think that the it's a really, really valuable conversation when we start to think about and evaluate, like, choice, right? Mm -hmm. Um. But at the same time, when she was kind of lambasted in the media mm-hmm. as a baby killer, that I had a really hard time with because either way you slice it, she gave birth to maybe a 25-week fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, and who in the world knows what to do with that? Well, and it also makes me think of the women who who have to birth stillbirths Mm -hmm. and how hard and how traumatic that is yeah and again like what do you do with that is that you know because i think that i think that that idea can come into play here yeah it totally can i i've known a couple of people that have gone through that and Mm -hmm. that's something that never leaves you never you know i've known a couple of people too and it's yeah, yeah, I don't think it ever leaves you. And I can't imagine that it's ever left Pervy Patel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think that, you know, she got painted in two very disparate ways that I don't think represent who she is or what she did, that she was mm-hmm. either this evil baby killer or this her- this pro-choice hero. Right. Yeah, and I think the truth is way too nuanced for either of those conclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is actually kind of a really interesting segue into her appeals process. Okay. So um, her appeals process was, I think, kind of fascinating. So (laughs) she filed an appeal pretty quick, April 22nd, 2015. So basically, 
the conceit of her appeal was to challenge two things, the feticide charge and the lung flow test. Mm-hmm. As she should. Those are perfectly appropriate appeals. Yes. So in the space of her appeal, in order to get the feticide charge discharged, she basically, to my understanding, had to kind of admit that there was a degree of neglect on her own part, mostly for not getting medical care okay um earlier on so but is that uh uh, uh, yeah but uh, wait for it because i hear you're grunting but wait for it okay so basically what happened is that uh the court did agree to hear those arguments and about a year later in 2016 the court did rule in her favor that the original legislature did not intend for the feticide statute to be used in that way. Correct. Good job. So they did vacate the feticide charge, which is the heavy the heavy hitter charge that yeah. got her the 20 years in the first place. The discharge of the feticide charge was crucial. The other part of this that's more nuanced but still important is that on that day that they vacated the feticide charge, they also ruled that... The state had, in fact, to their mind, proven that the child was born alive. And in order to get the appeal to work, essentially, Pervy Patel had to admit to that as well, Mm. that the state had proven that the child was born alive. Mm. However, what the state did not prove is that the child would have lived if she had sought medical attention. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that basically allowed for the discharge of both the feticide charge and the class a neglect charge that she had been charged with as well so the neglect charge is that she neglected to care for a fetus mm-hmm. okay i think like that's yeah. where my grunts and my groans come from yeah well okay so there's different classes of neglect okay so she was originally charged with class a neglect Mm -hmm. which is the most serious type of neglect charge there is which means that like there were aggravating factors that you know caused the neglect to to be particularly egregious Mm -hmm. um that basic needs were like completely and willfully ignored Mm. right it's the willfulness that defines to my understanding the class a neglect charge yes so then you go into your your lower classes of that charge, right? And so what she ended up getting charged with was class D felony neglect of a dependent, which essentially in layman's terms is basically like you didn't mean to do it, but you mm-hmm. should have known better. Yes. So she was essentially released as a result of the discharge of both of those major charges. Mm-hmm. So she today is a free woman. And that is the Pervy Patel case. So do you think justice was done? Big question. (laughs) That's a big question. I hesitate to think that justice exists in this case. Yeah. Because I think that whether or not a crime was done is very nebulous. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't feel good about it. I'll say that. Yeah. Um. I definitely wish that she had listened to Felicia Turnbow. I think mm-hmm. Felicia Turnbow really tried yeah. to get her to do the right things. Yeah. So uh, she really tried to do the right thing by her friend. 
And Praveen Patel did not listen to that advice. I think mm-hmm. she was so afraid to take it because it meant having to face up to something she didn't want to face up to. So I guess my question is, can justice exist in a case where we don't know whether or not a very, very serious crime was committed? Yeah. Um, but, like, did she commit a class D felony neglect? Yeah, absolutely she did. But it all feels icky to me. Yeah. Which feels like a cop-out answer, but that's my truth. <laughs> like, it just was justice served. I don't know what justice is here. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. too It's too murky. What do you think? I think that... None of us can know whether or not a crime actually happened that day. Yeah. Because none of us were there and because the science can't prove one way or another. Yeah. Should she have gotten medical care? Yes. Immediately. Yes. I Mm. I agree. I wish she had listened to her friend. But does she have the right to have an abortion? Yes. Was this... uh, I don't even want to say was this the right way to go about it because that sounds like a judgment. You're right. It feels kind of gross either way. I don't want... I wouldn't ever want to set any kind of precedent. I I, I am very pro-choice. Like, very, very much pro-choice. And I don't want any crime or any sentencing to set a precedent that a woman can't seek an abortion in any way, shape, or form, or even communicate that. Mm -hmm. But this... It's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Or this, it, it, the, this story is uncomfortable. Because like I said, we can't know if there was a crime. Yeah. I don't yeah, even know if Pervy th- Patel knows if there was a crime. Exactly. I don't know either. And I think even like like that question of a privileged position, like, like you speak to it from a privileged position. Um, and I think it can be argued that she also sat within a privileged position mm-hmm. in some ways, uh, at least financial privilege. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. didn't and didn't use that to her advantage, right? Yeah. But what she didn't have, I guess, is like a cultural privilege that she could have gone through the right routes to a safe medical abortion without, you know, facing some repercussions from her family. Now what those repercussions would be I don't think from what her parents have said to the media, if we take that at face value, which I do, it would have been hard for them. Yeah. But I don't think that she would have been, like, injured or hurt or excommunicated or ostracized. You yeah. Know? It would have been hard. It would have been hard. Yeah. You know? I can also speak from – I'm in Chicago land. There yeah. is – there's no dearth of access to health care. Yeah. I also have a a more, my background is behavioral science, but it's more closely aligned with the medical field. Yeah. I would know what to do. And I don't know. And I don't, I, I don't know much about her family. So I, I, I wouldn't even venture to guess like what that, what that yeah. would look like, what that conversation would look like. Yeah. I mean, I think in what's hard in Indiana is that there is a dearth of access to women's health care and there is a dearth of information as well mm-hmm. so like for instance in my class the other day my kids were like oh my gosh that person is seven weeks pregnant she must be huge <laughs> and I'm like seven <laughs> weeks pregnant that baby's the size of a blueberry like but they, they have no idea they have no idea and these are 18 year old girls you know 
Um, but they have no idea. Because so, they're, they're like, oh, she's a quarter of the way through. So Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what they're like, oh, my God, she must be massive. And I'm just like over here laughing at my desk. But well, but I think about it. So when I used to teach at a uh, university, I, I loved teaching the um, sexual health class. Loved mm. it. Because those students were clueless. Yeah. Absolutely clueless about how birth control works about mm-hmm. what birth control options there were. And it didn't even matter by age because I tended to teach a lot of night classes as an adjunct. So yeah. you tend to get more of the older non-traditional students. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know when were you most likely to get pregnant? When are you the most fertile? What's, yeah. What are the different types of abortion? Yeah. And again, like that's in Chicagoland and I had a pretty diverse student body. So yeah. I mean, I think if there's one thing that I can definitely be sure of is that I think that Pervy Patel for a good chunk of time had no idea what her body was going through. That I I feel very confident in saying I don't think that yeah. she knew how far along she was. I don't think. Mm-mm. I think that is true. Yeah. And I think she probably legitimately like was experiencing cramping and um, those feelings that like like early pregnancy feels a lot like PMS. It's just PMS that lasts for three months. Like, you you do have cramping. I think 20% of, of women in their first trimester will have spotting. So, mm-hmm. like, she experienced those things. She told that to, to Turnbow. But those symptoms can very easily be chalked up to PMS or... Again, a lack of a period because of stress. She kept saying stress. Or women that have, I don't know of any of her other medical background, but PCOS, Mm -hmm. fibroids, anything like that will make you just have weird periods and pain. Yeah, exactly. Endometriosis, like Mm -hmm. there's whole kinds of things. And and I, I would kind of hazard to guess that like if she had one of those types of conditions, she probably didn't know about that either. Oh, yeah. Oh, so many women don't know that they have endometriosis. Yeah. I didn't know that I had that I had an ovarian cyst until it ruptured. So that was fun. Oh yeah, that did happen to you. <laughs> that was literally the worst day of my life. <laughs> yeah, that was a bad day. I remember that day. That was uh, a bad day. So yeah, I think like uh it's so murky. It feels so And that's why like I wanted to talk about this case, but at the same time I was like this is not one where I can come down and say this is what happened and this is what should have happened. And Mm -hmm. because I just feel like even with the facts of the case, every part of it is still so incredibly nebulous. Yeah. So it's just like wading through a pond of jello. I am glad that you did this case. I'm glad that you didn't shy away from it. I don't shy away from anything. I know you don't. And I'm glad that we don't. Yeah. But... I'm glad we covered it because I think it, it's a very interesting discussion. It's a really nuanced story that I think you did a very good job of telling the ins and outs Thank of. Thank you. Yeah. Aw. Thanks, Fran. Welcome, Fran. I mean, I really hope that it just, that it makes you think, you know? And yeah. I think it's also like really good evidence that sometimes, even if like, how things happened or why things happened can be questionable or like, you know, how culpable is a person who like Ed Gein who had all these different things going on in their Mm -hmm. background. Like at least, you know, 
a crime was committed and here's what the after effect was. Yeah. And you can form your opinion based on how, based on the crime. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this, this does not allow for that. Correct. I agree. And so we have to just kind of sit in that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't like it, but. But you do like it though. I do. I do. Because it's a puzzle and this is a puzzle that does not have a solution. Mm-mm. But talking about it is really fruitful because I think it can help you get to like other sets of belief. Like, well, it, it's interesting com- to me because I heard about this story from a very kind of feminist community, mm-hmm. and so you hear more about the bodily autonomy arguments and all of that stuff, which are entirely mm-hmm. valid. Um, but there is so much more than just that going on. Yeah, and I had no idea when it was playing out in real time around here what the actual facts of, mm-hmm. like, the lead-up was. Because the text message and stuff like that, like, those were not in the news media, like, in real time. So um, so it's been interesting also just to think about all of that going on in this community. The most closed. Her parents have stayed very, very quiet. I don't know that they still live here. I don't think that they do, actually. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think that that's understandable too. Like it's that's a tragic byproduct that makes sense. Like, yeah. you know, I just if I, you were to leave the area, yeah. I just feel like the story became more of a Rorschach test than anything else. Yeah. The story and is I think what you Perfect see. Patel as a human person has been kind of forgotten in all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> yeah. So, ugh. there you have it, people. That was heavy. Yeah, so that was really heavy. So tell us about next week. Because we've been hitting y'all with some bruisers lately. We have been hitting you guys so heavy, and we are very aware of it. So for next week, we are going to lighten things up a little bit, as light as they get in true crime. Yeah, which is not very. There is no nuance to next week's case. Yeah. We are doing a hard and fast, bloody, gory, old-timey, think Oregon Trail meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But in the Midwest. But in the Midwest. So come on back for that. If this one was rough for you, we got a romp for you next week. A romp. (laughs) It's a romp. It is kind of a romp. It is. Straight up. (laughs) there's no nuance there's no complexity there's no political questions or gray area so we're back with some just straight up gory crime next week yeah some classic a true crime classic i would say classic so but an undertold classic it is undertold so friends thanks for staying with us thanks for being with us thanks for sitting through a rough one yeah totally and uh you're awesome and we just love you and think that you're the coolest so thank you for being here thank you so much we love you thanks for sitting through with us and okay all right friends well remember always (laughs) awkward (laughs) it was (laughs) whoops whoops uh be nice eat cheese we love you we love you
just go and be like, I'm no, so no, 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 no. You are not sorry. You are not sorry. Look me in the eyes. You're not sorry for being nice to people. And you're not sorry for doing your job like the goddamn professional you are. That's right. We're goddamn professionals. That's right. Let's talk about murders. I think we just got our blue. <laughs> <laughs>